Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Today's guest is Claire Enders, who has been the UK's preeminent media and technology analyst, strategist and forecaster for over 30 years. After working across cable, satellite and commercial public sector broadcasting, she set up Enders Analysis in 1997 to build comprehensive models for all parts of the UK and Europe's media, telecoms and technology sectors and provides its research and expertise to 140 organisations. During this time, Claire Enders has built a reputation for outspoken and contrarian analysis of the prospects for technology, telecoms and media across Europe. She famously predicted the first dot-com crash, the advertising collapse of the noughties, and has analysed every major sports rights deal over the last three decades. So, of course, we talked about the market for sports media rights generally and the Premier League specifically, Amazon, the Fangs, DAZN, the Netflix for sport hype, the lessons of Disney+, Plus, audience behaviours for sport, the implications of private equity, bidding for sports rights, and the Premier League's China problem. As ever, Claire Enders did not pull her punches. <laughs> Before we before we get into the specifics, obviously we're going to talk about sport and sports media rights. And um, what do people? What's could you just sort of put a bit of context around Ender's analysis because people will know the name and they'll know you. But just to to pinpoint, what is it that who are your clients and what do they want from you? So, well, I really see it as more of a very large community that we're part of. For we have seven thousand readers across two hundred organizations. We're the leading. Uh, independent research company in our field quoted by the Financial Times. I am the most quoted single analyst of all time in the Financial Times because I was first quoted there in 1985. It's simply longevity. So I have been an analyst since 1984 in the TV field. I've, I've I've never switched horses. I've just added different fields that became more and more important like telecoms and so on. And, and, and obviously technology. Um, uh, our team is 30 strong. Uh, we are extremely proud to be uh, the originators of important uh, ideas and concepts that have helped the UK progress, uh, particularly the creative economy um, after 2003. Um, we uh, are leaders in activism in uh, diversity, um, also in sustainability. Uh, I use. I've just been spent the last six months saving the zoos of England, and uh, and in particular the Zoological Society of, of London. And I, I think that there are very few things that we are not interested in that aren't going on. Um, we 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 are we are very focused on Europe uh, because Europe is very interesting and made up of many different countries, all of them with very different models. And, and, and that is in opposition to the very large-scale global models, which, as we know, have become, have become the dominant um, uh, life forces across a number of different sectors. But that, of course, has long been true. Um, and sports is actually one of the most interesting areas because it both focuses its value on live, uh, on local, and on territorial rights. So it's, it's a very interesting um, and, and, dare one say, potentially could be considered an old-fashioned model in many ways in a world with, um, you know, valuations such as Netflix's or, or Disney Plus's effective valuation within the Disney mix. I mean, these are these are titanic plays, and of course, we are now two weeks after the point when Apple became more valuable than all of the FTSE 100. So, 
we're we're living in a very interesting age where 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 all of the noise comes from uh, you know essentially the west coast of america and and the tech giants and their dominance and 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 we're very focused on on understanding the granularity of european markets um, and i think i think we do a great deal to add to the uh, depth of knowledge um, and then essentially w- what we hope very much to do is is to be very very good actors and stakeholders in every community and for them to be stakeholders in ours um, and that is a progressive and activist view of the world. So in terms of, of when sport started to become a significant part of what you did, I mean, I, 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 when was that? Was that around the beginning of Premier League, sort of 92? Is that, is that the time where you started to take more notice? Well, absolutely. I've I've always taken notice of everything as a, as a media analyst, and 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 the turning point in Sky's fortunes was in fact snatching the Premier League from I believe it was ITV, um, uh, who were the and, and and that was a turning point. So I've I've always been interested in sport. I don't think it's a significant part of our business at all uh, because we have views that are very long term. And you don't find many clubs or leagues that work on a long-term basis. And that's particularly been true since the uh, three-year term for sports rights became the norm. Uh, That that makes for very short decision-making, very emotional auctions, and very shallow thinking. Our work is not for shallow thinkers. And I'm afraid they abound in in sports, of course. Why do you think it landed on that three-year it was a regulatory intervention by the European Commission. It was not something that in the end uh, favoured the clubs in the long run. It hasn't favoured them. As we've seen, they've become very exposed during the virus uh, crisis because they don't have long-term sources of income. You know, when you're only on three-year terms and suddenly you have to offer a huge rebate to broadcasters, you, you simply don't have the financial uh, conditions uh, to, to to look attractive to banks, especially when you're already loaded with debt. So I think the clubs have been very exposed by this, but of course they made out like bandits for years and, and never developed a sustainable model along the way. Really simply remarkable. So, so that was also uh, part of a mandate by the European Commission to introduce competition. So single rights holders in markets like the UK uh, which was Sky, were challenged for, for, for those rights which were mandated to go to a lesser player. We've seen many, many bodies, many, many corpses uh, laid at the door of this, of this rule that there should be two bidders in every auction. Uh, for instance, uh, um, Setanta, 11 Sports, uh, uh, DAZN is now withdrawing from, from, from various markets. So so, so, so the level of competition that these dual rights packages has, has ushered in uh, has actually been injurious for, for, for many investors, and it's just part of an interesting global play. So, so you know, what we've seen is, is, is that there isn't any change anyway. I mean, you know, we're, we're not seeing a, an outbreak of, of, of common sense or long-term thinking even now. Even as we you know, as as you know, you and I and I have discussed. I mean, one of the things that I would say is, my firm is very good at predicting the overall shape of things to come. So we we make very provocative predictions in order to warn people 
and to give them a lot of information about what's really going on and what really happens on the finances. Because as you know, many people in the sports business are struggle with basic numeracy. And as a result, they, they don't understand what the impact of, of money wastage really is on the sport and on the players and, and on the access to the game. I mean, what we've seen is access in a paradoxical way squeezed off um, by sports rights inflation. Uh, rather than liberated. So, but anyway, you had a whole series of questions, Richard, and I really have prepared very detailed answers to each of them. So you better crack on because I only have so much time. Okay. <laughs> okay. Since um, it's a, a game, you mentioned in terms of uh, the spans of the contracts, each time a Premier League contract comes up, there is a question, is it, you know, the peak sport question, the market for sports rights generally, could you just take us inside? Um, uh, we talk a lot about the Premier League side of this, but what have been the what's been the longer term impact on the value of Sky and and to a lesser extent BT of their their sports strategy? Do you think that's a very good question? So actually, we've already seen peak sport. It's in the past, right? Certainly in the UK, in terms of PL rights, you know, the the, the last auction um, was 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 basically you know, um, past peak and it was down, the takings were down. We expect that to continue. The overall market for sports media rights of that level, the premium level, I'm talking really PL, Bundesliga, La Liga and so on, is, is down slightly. And we expect that to continue through um, the important upcoming auctions such as the PL. Uh, in, in fact, that just continues. This is because the, the very significant and entrenched players like Sky are are cutting those costs um, and 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 reallocating them to uh, original material where they control the rights. That's certainly been true for Sky's walking away from the Bundesliga with a select group of, of, of rights, much much cheaper. Sky did not bid for the rugby highlights packages, which which Amazon got, so it didn't bid for those at all. Uh, just walked away. Um, so you're seeing a lot of discipline from really the alpha male in, in, in the PL, which is, which is Sky. But in terms of Sky's value, um, the PL has always been a strong driver, but it is many years since it was the only one. And, and so Sky you know, was sold for $35 billion you know, with already in the bag uh, a reduction in what it paid to the Premier League and, and with tens of, of other key revenue streams from sports to broadband. And it's incredibly good at monetizing rights, but the company makes the same structural loss in sports as BT, and for the same reasons, and that was overpayment for rights in the past. And that situation didn't stop Sky from being sold at a huge price to Comcast, but in contrast, BT has suffered you know, a momentous decline in its value as the marketing benefits of giving away sports, which was its initial strategy, simply did not materialize. So the strategy has shifted to pricing as high as possible to achieve break-even in 22-23, which will be 10 years after they entered the business. So one can say that sports has been crippling to BT, and they too have a structural loss of around $300 million a year, in, 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 really as a result of, of overpaying for, 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 for Premier League as well as, in their case, for UEFA. So they really broke the bank and it broke them. Something which I actually predicted on the day they announced their move by saying Hubert will be followed by Nemesis. Well, Nemesis has been with them now for three years and the shadows are very long on BT. So, you know, the 
UK sports broadcasters are very likely to be trying as hard as they can to think about reducing their rights costs in this area. But, you know, we have to understand as ever that auctions are very emotional affairs. And in the past, BT has always blinked and written a very large check. It feels, has felt very vulnerable in the past, but we'll see. I think this auction, they're in a, entering a stronger position. They have they have actually got many more games, two very strong packages and so on. They can probably afford, both of these companies can probably afford knowing exactly what's going on with their own situation. They can they can really afford to to offer less if they want to. But as I said, they're very emotional affairs. But you know, Sky has not been emotionally affected by these auctions for some time. I'd say really the last three years, we've seen uh, extraordinary discipline at Sky. And I, we think that will continue. Uh, we've seen that across the piece as well. I mean, in every single other auction, they've been very disciplined. They have an overall view about what works for them and why, and they know what they're doing. So I'm, I'm thinking that this PL auction could lead to a 5 to 10% declines in the rights values in the UK of that sport, unless the PL extends the term to, say, five years, in which case that would, be, that would, that would sort of change the dial. That would, that would basically guarantee, I think, that they would basically have about the same as last time. And, and this would also enable long-term audience development because one of your questions really covers something which is worrying, which is basically how do you get long-term audience development that you actually need? And, and essentially, the inflation, which, which I was referred to as fairy godmothers not understanding things, uh, certainly at the clubs, thinking that there was a, an unending you know, lineup of companies right after BT, there was going to be another group of mugs you know, called the tech companies who would step right in and, and so on and do exactly the same old thing all over again. And that just has proved to be false. And, and you know, when you have structural losses and you have models that require these extraordinarily significant commitments to, in the case of Sky, you know, it is the single most important force in British football at the grassroots. It really knows what it's doing. It has to work on a long-term basis. In Scandinavia, the PL is said to have signed uh, longer deals. And I, I strongly recommend um, to the PL clubs that if they want to sort themselves out, after all, they've just had a bloodbath event, which is the virus crisis, which exposed all of these clubs to paying rebates, but having no way of clawing that back from their players. Uh, so, so you have a, a lot of distressed clubs around the place. And so I hope that they'll be thinking sensibly about how to insulate themselves in what is going to be a very long virus crisis lasting to my mind at least five years so now on the plus side of this equation i don't think there's any 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 risk to the core value of sports in, insofar as you know the fact is, is is that you know live events are very valuable uh, the audiences have come back very well. I would argue we think that sports subscriptions around around Europe, around the world, are, are basically uh, holding up and have held up post the furlough because of the inventiveness of people like Sky suspending payments and so on. So the value of sports is definitely, you know, they've had a good crisis from that perspective, but the clubs have had obviously a ghastly crisis, as indeed have the players. So there's a couple of things there. I just want to pick up on just very quickly. You've got a the view of the sort of risk reward ratio, which is always obviously the risk is always loaded in terms of on the broadcast side. Of they pay these you know enormous fees and and 
work very hard to try and make that money back. I'm flagging up the DAZN example in Japan recently, where they've sort of restructured, lengthened the deal, but also with the J League in Japan, which is a significant one for for DAZN. It's not something I want to sort of spend enormous amounts of time on, but is that the sort of conversation that you're looking at? It was it was mentioned. Barney Francis, you know, suggested it was a it was a could be a fascinating case study. Of, of how broadcasters start to change that ratio and load some risk back onto the rights holder? I don't think we're going to see that in the UK at all. You know, Sky and BT Sport are in a completely different financial situation than DAZN. DAZN is raising a billion dollars. It's, it's in a state of crisis. It's pulling out of the USA and Brazil. And it's only staying in Japan because it came to a revenue-sharing deal with the J-League that is their venture and essentially gives an ownership stake to, to the J-League. So they were forced to accept these terms, okay? The J-League was forced to accept these terms because no one else is interested in them and there's no other way to market in the way that they're used yeah. to. So, so that just shows that, you know, there are a lot of people who wander into the game or into the sports area and, and, they, and they make big bets like MediaPro or DAZN, and then they pull they pull out. I mean, DAZN's global platform is going to be one which is uniquely focused on boxing. I mean, it's, you know, the Netflix for sport, that is just so over for DAZN. And so I would see, again, you know, Japan is a very big country, uh, but, you know, J-League is a very particular interest. So, so, so I think that's just the best that they could do. I mean, that's not going to happen where we have very, very well-established and well-financed uh, uh, broadcasters as we do in the UK. It's not going to happen. Mm. But it just does show that the Netflix for sports concept that DAZN was so keen on proselytizing, I mean, it did start out with this whole approach. That is just so over. It's not going to work. DAZN is just basically doubling up on, on, on Europe and in, in general and Germany in particular. And it's not, it's not going to get anywhere in the UK, for sure. You know, I mean, for sure. They're completely blown out of the water in, 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 in the USA and Brazil. And essentially, they have to fold in, in, in Japan and find another way to continue in business in that market. They're, they're, they don't, I mean, if they're raising a billion dollars, I mean, that, that is just going to basically go to support their global boxing thing. They're, they're, they're nothing to worry about. They never were anything to worry about in the UK. But honestly, for the amount of, hope the clubs have put into DAZN. My heavens, fairy godmother time. Over, over. Okay, should we talk about other fairy godmothers? We love that. Let's get, yeah, let's, let's, let's stay on fairy godmothers because, I mean, the uh, fangs, gaffans, whatever we want to call them. Can you unpick Amazon's sports strategy for us? What's going on? Well, Amazon's sports strategy like everything to do with Amazon, really is incomparable and unique to the business, okay? So they, they, they are also got, have strategies that is determined by different objectives. Amazon buys, you know, video and, and other rights in, in order to, to, to keep its prime customers interested in staying and in, 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 in basically staying with it and to give them a sort of a thank you. So it's basically a, a bundle, a, a product that is bundled with free postage and, and it's free, right? So they're basically the vast, vast number of, of prime customers that they have mean that they're constantly just naturally growing what is a very small audience that is entirely focused around 
uh, peak shopping moments. So the rugby package it, it just acquired encompasses key shopping days in November, the um, 13 to 14 million prime customers that it has now are an extraordinary route to market, but they're not paying for anything. And even the PL experience that they was very interesting, a very interesting experiment for them at, at, at Christmas last year, that was really focused around big shopping days. So they, they've made a few small bets in the UK and they've been really small. I mean, they were just um, handed the PL games. Their bid was preferred to BTs, even though BTs was higher. So they were they were basically the PL put out a very very thick red carpet for Amazon, i.e., the company that could pay anything for these rights, and basically gave them away to Amazon. So 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 they're doing that. So I think we'll see, you know, as I said, Sky didn't even bid for the package that Amazon got. Uh, it, it does, you know, uh, Sky is a very deep local service. Amazon is very happy with very high impact um, events. For instance, um, the Jeremy Clarkson show, the Grand Tour, is, is fantastically successful for them because it's only of interest to one audience, but it's a very, it's a very, very big audience in the UK, petrol heads. And, and it only works for a short amount of time and that's all they want. They want event driven things. So they don't have any stomach for keeping the pace the way that Sky does. I mean, Sky basically spends all year marketing sports so that they will generate increased audiences. You know, Amazon markets to its prime customers and, and there you have it. So it's a completely different, strategy and we we just have never and we just do not predict that this um uh, type of approach is consistent with challenging either sky or bt for 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 the major rights packages which are upon which the pl revenues are so critical um you know they're only interested in 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 as i said you know very very specific um elements around shopping events um, I, I've actually long predicted that the streaming giants were never going to challenge either Sky or BT for the existing packages, and I have long been right. So Netflix, of course, has been in this country since January 2012, and now we're going into the eighth year of their existence here. They're so wildly successful that I really don't think that they need sport. So uh, Apple itself, as we know, has become a modest player with original material. So yes, I, I have to say that I think the day of the fairy godmother is can well and truly be thought to be over. And therefore, I do think that the long-term uh, nature of the COVID crisis, the vulnerability of club finances to short-term deals, and the necessity to develop audiences for the very long term and to reinforce sport as the national game, which I think the games on the BBC really showed that national audiences of very substantial size are there for the PL. Um, and I think, I think working with Sky and BT to develop those audiences and to, and, 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 and basically to meet some of the objectives of a government, which is really trying to uh, deal with obesity. I think this is a very viable social uh, set of social objectives for the clubs. I think it should be at the heart of what they think about in moving into this auction. I know it sustainability is what Sky 
thinks about also in relation to the game and its business model. And although BT doesn't think that way, it's not in a financial position to do that. I think that um, Sky is, and and I know that that BT is completely committed to 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 the PL as well. I want to jump from there then, because there seems to be a the audience when you know as soon as a sport like football, you know, there was a moment there in the last couple of months where suddenly Premier League was on um, free to air television. There is this the audience aging demographics of, of and this is a, facing lots of different um, sports, but. There is a sort of an assumption that it's a tech-driven change in behaviour, but actually economics explains most of it, doesn't it, in terms of they've just been pri- the young people have been priced out of watching big sport? There is no question that a generation ago, young people were subscribers to uh, sports, and that was true up until really the arrival of YouTube and, and Netflix in the UK in 2012. I mean, obviously smartphones uh, have, have, have done their bit and so on. So, but I would say that there's also many, many more options for young people, uh, gaming options in particular, um, you know, esports uh, have been a, 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 tr- a tremendous draw for, 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 for younger demographics. I also think that the image of the sport has suffered from the fact that it never changes. It's always beery, stupid, hell-raising footballers with wags. And that's very unattractive to young people. Um, so it, it, but I would say that the problem of viewing in sports is actually across the piece. So, so although we've seen uh, sports viewership, um, so the 16 to 34 is accounted for around 18% of sports viewership in 2010 and only 12% in 2019. But even for those age 55 plus, which are really very, very hardcore sports fans and obviously very heavy viewers, you know, they don't do an awful lot more other than viewing TV. (laughs) The average viewing of sports television actually fell by 38% in the same period. So compared to only 14% for TV as a whole. So they've basically stayed with TV as a whole, but they've really declined on sports television. So I think that... The fall off, well, I mean, we know where the fall off has really been felt. Basically, people are not interested in all of the non-live material and filler, okay? They're not interested in that. They're they're not staying with channels that offer that. They just switch off right away. And and so, you know, but overall, I would say that, you know, the creme de la creme, if we may speak of it, like the Premier League, is still very robust. So that is also another really interesting phenomenon, which is that the top events are are staying more significant in the mix and the lesser events are falling away, right? So it's very hard to get interest for anything apart from football and rugby and, and Formula One. So that's it. So essentially you're living in a world where 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 the top value franchises are essentially more visible to that young audience and they're really as, as we know, primarily interested in free clips, right? So they're not subscribing because access is immediate. It plays to the kind of news focus of, of young people, uh, of knowing what's going on, but, but, but the real fan base is not being developed. So, so, so that's a fact. Uh, the real football fan base is in, is, is in decline and it's, it's in decline across the piece. Now, 
Sky's own performance within that has been exemplary because the PL average uh, was up this year to 1.4 million, uh, you know, before the stoppage, 1.4 million people, which is which is excellent. So, so as I said, they're they're very good at putting a lot of very hard work into developing those audiences through their uh, exploitation of of their extraordinarily dense and rich customer data management. So, so, so they're very good at communicating with their subscribers and, and, and delivering a very great deal of value. And in fact, they have been prepared to take an increasing loss in the area, which is, you know, probably going to go down a little bit in order to keep developing viewership. So they've, they've basically done extremely well at <clears throat> increasing their audience for, for Premier League games at a time when, when, when basically interest in sport as a whole seems to be um, on the wane. You know, so I, I think there are a lot of elements in the mix there. there. There's a lot of different things that are going on. People have have, have had a massive explosion in choice. Uh, Netflix, YouTube, uh, and now Disney Plus. You know, these these are all these are all competing for for attention. But you know, as I said, the sport the sports image is unchanged from 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 a generation ago, and and everything that it does doesn't seem to work to really. Um, drive any change in that? You know the uh, YouTube channels of, of the Premier League clubs, you know, are 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 are, are not are, are not particularly material. There there there's certainly no replacement for for the uh, impact of 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 the pay TV window on 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 these games. So there is a the sense that highlights and clips are just marketing material rather than something to be monetized. Do you think that's going to change? There was a, a interesting quote, whether he, it, that's been probably overanalyzed, Peter Scott Warner media um, vice president who suggested that highlights will be more valuable than live rights because he thinks that's where the, the capacity for growth is. But that is quite difficult to, to, to make a business case for, isn't it? Impossible. No, I think he's completely wrong. No, I, I, I think he's absolutely wrong. I think one can just say it boldly. He is wrong. Well, that's easy. <laughs> okay. Highlights, highlights are given away to people on a systematic basis. They're uploaded right away. I mean, there is a, a, a desire in the Premier League to be newsworthy and that and to be shared. And that trumps any any idea of monetization. I mean, forget that. So what that is done, and as I said, you know, the viewing clearly shows that people are focused on live games and and high quality live games even more, but they're not interested in other stuff and they're not interested in secondary filler sport. They're not at all. So the monetary value is definitely with live, and that has been shown in the fact that it is so significantly valuable to to Sky and BT that they bid very very alarming sums for these games. Absolutely, the monetary value is totally with live in relation to the PL. And that's going to be true, therefore, of everybody else. I mean, let's face it, there is an empirical way to look at this, which is, is, is that the Sky's YouTube highlights you know, channel um, has had no discernible impact on its ability to increase the viewing of a Premier League game. And, and the Premier League's highlights themselves have had no discernible impact on, on viewing. So you know, everybody's added, including the fans, you know? Uh, in fact, user-generated content is, a, is, a, is, 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 you know, as you know, we talk about piracy, you know, that, that in a sense is piracy, but 
it's of course going to to be very significant. The fans are there. I mean, or they used to be anyway. So, 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 so maybe you know there'll be fewer of those to contend with uh, if there are no fans in the stadia. But even that is a problem because the clubs can't survive without fans in stadia. The clubs are in such dire trouble from the double whammy of rebates on broadcast rights and empty stadia and no merchandising sales. So I think I think the clubs are in a very difficult and challenging position, and the leagues as well. Um, but as a result of problems of their own making and of the viruses making, which which they must address definitely. Uh, so yes, I mean highlights. If they were worth something, I'm sure they would have figured out how to monetize them. <laughs> um, okay, like, I'm going to jump forward to um, private equity because that's a again part of the conversation. We've had a lot of people on the podcast, both from clubs and, and rights holders, but also from the private equity side. And they're talking um, about you know, the, the sort of potential that uh, can come from um, investment. There is a particular story around Serie A uh, media rights, which I think is interesting. And people are sort of looking at this because they see this as a version of the future for lots of other sports. But so the implications of private equity bidding for media rights um, one that in front um, is just one of seven um, contenders for the for investment, um, and Serie A puts a fifteen percent limit on equity investment. What's happening? What 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 do you think the role of private equity around media rights is going to be? What are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to do what they've always tried to do, which is to make money and to transform businesses along the way. And they you know, have a, a pretty good record of doing that in many other areas and, and in sport. Um, I think that the Serie A situation is unique to Italy. So uh, uh, that's not to say that the problems of clubs are unique to Italy. I think I've highlighted the fact that every club in Europe is going to have some combination of these problems of rebates and, and empty stadia. You know, and, and, and in fact, the situation is so dire in France that, that the clubs there are, 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 are seeking to force the French government to give them the right to reopen the stadia. So, so I, think, I think the reason why we're seeing a feeding frenzy of private equity is very simple. Private equity went into the virus crisis with over a trillion in the bank to spend these are the big American beasts. And we've seen them being very active in this space for four or five years. The main way that we see them working is really to step into the breach uh, because of this crisis situation uh, in, 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 terms of, in terms of the clubs. And there is no greater crisis situation than the Italian clubs at this time for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, the income from broadcasters is relatively low by comparison with other countries. Um, so the rebates have had to be very substantial. Uh, so I think that the uh, private equity folk are, are really basically going to be interested in, in very long-term sports franchises. But in the case of Italy, you've also got the limit on the 15%, which is there to guarantee uh, Italian ownership of some kind, of some description. And that's very important, I think, in Italy, in particular because of the political dimension. So it is very important for clubs to be able to speak to government and say, can we just reopen our stadia, please? 
they have to have some voice there. So, so that's that's why that rule has been put in. I predict that uh, Seri uh, rights will actually fall in value, uh, no matter who, which private equity company comes to own um, uh, the new. Mark, the, the, the new essentially marketing vehicle for the rights, which is a kind of a financial construct, which has been put on the table. And I, th I, think, I think those rights will go down. So the clubs need shoring up. And obviously the clubs will also need assistance in navigating this great new world. And, and if you look at some of the players that, that, that we know are in the frame, General Atlantic, CBC, but CBC in particular is one of the most active, is cropping up everywhere, Australia and everywhere. And, you know, that kind of ability to understand how to exploit global models is a very interesting one that CBC is, is gaining. Uh, for instance, a big investor, obviously, in, in, in rugby. Uh, but it's, it's looking at so many different kinds of franchises, you know, mainly you know, the, the top franchises. It's, it's gaining a great mm -hmm. deal of understanding about, about all of these different models. And it, it will gain a great deal of understanding about how to cut costs, because essentially, you don't see private equity interests without a complete reshaping of, 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 of these efforts. And, and, and you know, a, a completely different approach will be needed anyway because of the virus crisis. So the interest of private equity is there in, in the same way that vultures hover over dead bodies, right? So that's what private equity is doing. They're scavenging, and I'm sure that they will do good for all the clubs that they invest in. And in some cases, they scavenge and they also invest, as we've seen in many different cases. They know how to change management. Actually, change of management is something we've seen at DAZN as well. They're very good at bringing in very, very good management, uh, greater efficiencies and so on. So, so, so they're, but they're not, to my mind, potential fairy godmothers. They're, they're basically there to shore up the actual owners of the rights, which are, which are the leagues and the clubs. Mm. And one of the, you know, one of the lines that quite often comes back is that they sense that there is expansion possible in in foreign rights, overseas rights, and they talk about this in relation to, um, you know, lots of sports properties that they're looking to invest in. This brings us to my last question, I guess, is which is the Premier League and China, and this is a story that you know, obviously PPTV, the Sunning yeah. um, uh, broadcaster, has sort of reneged on its its. Um, uh, payments. What again is the, this? Is one that is tempting to analyse and say, well, what if China is not the sort of golden goose in terms of sports rights that it promised to be? This um, is it something that is just a sort of local political issue, or is it is it just an excuse to get out of a sort of a COVID short term reason for them sort of ducking that payment? And what what are the, do you think there are any longer term implications of this this? story? Uh, Richard, it is one of the most interesting questions you've asked me, and I hope you're also going to ask me about India, because I think people think so much about the UK, they're not watching what's going on elsewhere. So, and I think, I think it is, I think it is a, a story with global implications. Essentially, it covers two different elements. One is the impact of the virus crisis, which is basically the PL basically didn't deliver product rebates have been asked for by all broadcasters from the originators of the product that didn't show, right? That is for sure. That's happened everywhere. <laughs> so the Chinese broadcasters are absolutely entitled to their rights. What has been much more interesting 
is that the Chinese authorities have moved to downgrade major foreign franchises. So the NBA was also shown the door and both the NBA and the PL will end up in, will, will be shown on, on lesser channels in, in, in China in, in an attempt to, 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 to meet um, essentially political ends to downgrade these products to, to hard to find for, for Chinese audiences. I don't think that's going to make a blind bit of difference to the eventual audiences for this material, because I think I think there are a lot of fans for the NBA as for the PL, but this this just shows how how interesting the political dimension of sport has become. These were political decisions which will have a direct impact on the PL and the NBA's income. And yes, uh, USA and 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 and, and British. Sport is directly affected by the trade dispute that Mr. Trump has chosen to lead on on China, and and which Mr. Johnson, our Prime Minister, has agreed to support. Uh, I don't think it's going to affect any other uh, major franchise, which is not British or American. On the contrary, those franchises will be greatly assisted. So this is about how politics is really working, and we see a direct nexus now as a result of the virus crisis between uh, governments and, and, and sport because of the parlous situation of, of, of the clubs and leagues and, and the necessity to activate for reopening of stadia or anything else, you know, a, a modus operandi for the future. So yeah, that's a completely extraordinary direct hit of Mr. Trump on the UK. I, I mean, I was going to, talk to you about the about Disney Plus. So Disney Plus has been the story of streaming. We've mentioned we've talked about the zone in a sports context, but obviously Disney is at a different scale and ambition, etc. But what's are there any lessons from Disney Plus that that you think will filter back into the sports market? Well, I mean, I think that the story that is going to unfold in India as a result of the launch of Disney Plus um podcast um, with the India Cricket League coming back, is going to show huge potential growth. So the India Cricket League has just started games again, and Disney Plus is launching in a major market, and it has shown extraordinary success in every single foreign market that it has touched so far. So this is going to show how in India the particular marriage of these assets works. It is not going to show that it cares about sport. It is just that it bought these assets from Fox and it is combining to start with a platform of around nine to 10 million subscribers in India, which makes it one of the leading uh, platforms in, in, in India. And therefore the best really potential growth for Disney Plus is going to come A, from the adoption by those existing hotcast subs, and of course, these two extraordinary products, India Cricket League and Disney Plus, will help each other to, to, to grow. That is just simply going to be an extraordinary and interesting way of addressing what is one of the largest TV markets in the world, which, as we know, is, is very low income in terms of pay TV. Well, listen, Claire, I, I really appreciate your time. I know you're uh, very busy. Really enjoyed that. So I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.